Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his seven-week presentation, Matthew and Luke on Jesus, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is part two of week seven, titled Passion, recorded in March 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. Let's come to the crucifixion itself, uh, the center of the Paschal mystery. Remember, the word, the word Paschal is simply, um, comes from the Hebrew word Pascha, which is the word for the animal that is slaughtered for the Passover meal. That's where we get that from. Uh, and actually, that belongs more properly to John's gospel because Jesus is not the Lamb of God who is slaughtered. In the, he's the one who celebrates the Passover meal. He identifies with the bread and the wine, not with the body of the sacrificed animal in these gospels. So we really get that language comes from John, and so it really is a whole different topic. But we can call it the Paschal Mystery because it's, all a, it's a different perspective on the same reality in these gospels. How do the uh, synoptic gospels understand uh, Jesus' death on the cross. We have the, uh, the basic, again, the basic model of the suffering servant, as we know from the book of Isaiah, who mysteriously through his sufferings, others are made well, are made righteous, are brought into the fullness of God's creation. We have that. Uh, but how do they really present things? How do they really present? Because we, we have to line this up with Jesus' call to discipleship, which is only in the Synoptic Gospels, not in John. The call to discipleship, the call to the way of the cross. This comes from Mark, Matthew, and Luke reproduce it. What is the way of the cross? This has to be relevant to their understanding of Jesus' death. It's not just a sacrifice for sin. It is that. But it's sin in a particular context, in a particular set of circumstances that brings it to light, a particular um, epitome of sin. Well, when we talk about the cross as both what Jesus endures and what we are called to endure, we are placing everything within, again, the basic understanding of Jesus' mission to enact and, uh, and proclaim the kingdom of God. Against the kingdom of God in the Synoptic Gospels stands all other kingdoms, Herod's kingdom in Galilee, the kingdom, you know, as it were, of the chief priests in Jerusalem, and the kingdom of Rome. Again, we just talked about Rome uh, in Luke's version, but if you want to make it really simple, it's the sin of empire. The epitome of sin in these Gospels is the sin of empire. Not just because um, in the Old Testament, Israel has but one king, namely God. And ideally, Israel is to be free of human domination. That is what the Exodus means. Again, kingdom of God means the Exodus. And the Exodus is liberation from kingship, from rule of a king, and entering into the rule of God. Now, as we know in the Old Testament, there is a theological way out <laughs> Uh, of this only having God as our ruler by having a human ruler whom God appoints. That's called the Messiah. Uh, but and we even have, in, at, in one very unique place, in the book of Isaiah, 
the same book that we get the suffering servant from, we have the unique instance of God appointing a foreign ruler as his Messiah, appointing Cyrus, the Persian king, who allows the Jews to restore the temple as he is my Messiah. That's the Messiah in the book of Isaiah. It's not the suffering servant, it's Cyrus. Uh, Now, of course, all these images ultimately are fulfilled in Jesus, but um, the kingdom of God is incompatible with the kingdom of of other people. Uh, Jesus says this very explicitly when he teaches his disciples, uh, you see how the Gentiles rule through dominion, through oppression, through tyranny. Uh, These are the, the words that Jesus uses to describe Gentile rule. It is not like this among you. And with that one statement, although he's not naming the Romans, Jesus is saying the basic problem in the world is Gentile rule. Not that the Gentiles per se are the problem. The problem with Gentile rule is that it infects the rule of Israel. It infects Israel's leaders too. Herod behaves like a Gentile ruler. The priests in Jerusalem behave like Gentile rulers. Empire poisons everyone. The alternative to empire is the kingdom of God. The ideal of the exodus of Israel under God and under his Messiah. My point is that when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's saying that what you proclaim in the world will set you against empire as the epitome of human sin. Now, again, sin covers a whole range of human failures. But in the Gospels, when you're talking about the kingdom of God, the fundamental sin is the sin of empire or the sin of domination. That's why those who oppose him are the rulers. Think back to the Garden of Eden. That's where we say sin begins, the first sin. That's a sin against God. But the, but the, sin, the, 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 uh, the sin that manifests the consequences of original sin is the murder of, Cain, of Abel by Cain. So violence, murder, is, is the, the epitome of sin. Of the, it's the, it's the, the final expression of sin in the world, in real history. All sin revolves around an act of violence. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament, who are the primary violent people? They are kings. So kingship, uh, it, it, it symbolizes, it gathers within itself all that is wrong about the human condition in general. And so when I say the sin of empire is what the crucifixion represents or exposes, shall we say, all I'm saying is that it fits with the Old Testament. It fits with that theme in the Old Testament that is exposed in the Exodus, that's exposed in Jesus' teaching about the way the Gentiles rule is antithetical to the kingdom of God. It's antithetical. The, the, the modern story that really captures that, that teaching for me is actually when um, a prime minister of Israel at the time, what, about 10 years ago, who was assassinated by a fellow Israeli, right, for the, trying to push the peace process. Uh, Yitzhak Rabin, was that it? Okay, when he was killed, when he was murdered by an Israeli student, a law student, one of his eulogists at his funeral say, said, we have become like the Gentiles. We're treating one another now as the Gentiles treat us. That's exactly the, the language of Jesus' plea with his disciples. It's not like this among you. That empire represents the opposite of the kingdom. doesn't mean we're going to raise a revolt against it. That'll take place, you know, I'll take care of things when I come back. But expect to be crucified. You're only crucified in the Roman Empire if you're an opponent of Roman rule. The Romans don't crucify people for stealing money. They don't crucify people for, um, you know, not paying their taxes. They crucify you 
if you defy Roman rule, if, if your manner of life is antithetical to the empire and a threat to it. From the history of nonviolent resistance in the modern world, we know this to be true. Think of India, you know, the Gandhi's movement, how the empire targeted violence against that. You know, it, 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 it's, it's, so I'm not trying to reduce this, but I'm just trying to point out to highlight the distinctiveness of the synoptic author's understanding of what's really at stake in the crucifixion of Jesus. What does, what does it expose? It exposes sin. It neutralizes sin, but it's the sin ultimately of empire, which infects everything. It's the sin of violence, basically. Uh, now, of course, St. Anselm had a theory about the crucifixion. He said the reason why Jesus died was because it was to satisfy God's righteous anger at the world. Now, that may have worked in the Middle Ages. Um, it doesn't really work today. I mean, there, there are problems with that today because it, God turns out looking like an abusive parent. Um, I'm angry with everyone, so I'm going to beat up my son. That's, of course, that's an sim- uh, oversimplification, maybe, maybe in a distortion of his satisfaction theory. But it's not the theory embraced by the evangelist. The theory of the evangelist is that it is inevitable when God announces his kingdom that the existing kingdom or kingdoms, the existing order will oppose it. Violence will oppose nonviolence. That's just how the world is. That's how it is all the way since Cain and Abel. I try to te- tell people otherwise, but they keep committing violence. So that, that is, I would argue, the, one of the major shades of meaning to the specifics of this story that we have. What else happens um, at the crucifixion? Well, a prodigy takes place, a, a sign, a portent, a mysterious portent. In all three synoptic gospels, and not in, Ma- and not in John, uh, the, the curtain of the temple tears in two. So we're back to the theme of the temple now. Ever since Jesus um, predicts the temple's destruction, uh, we have suddenly this theme of the temple's destruction being related to his destruction. And this is prominent in the scene of the crucifixion itself, where the, one of the mockeries of the onlookers is saying, ha-ha, you, dest- you who are destroying the temple, save yourself. Now, everything that's said by the, acute, by the mockers of Jesus is ironically true, actually. Uh, you who are the king of Israel, we don't really believe that, but you are the king of Israel. Everything they say is really true, even though they don't understand it. So when they say, you who are destroying the temple, Jesus is destroying the temple in some sense. Luke soft pedals this, but even he doesn't take this story out. Um, something happens to the temple. The temple curtain is ripped. Now, which curtain are we talking about? There are actually two curtains in the temple. There's an outer curtain, which separates the outside of the sanctuary from the inside of the sanctuary. It separates the temple precinct from the place of sacrifice and may, may have been visible from Golgotha, where Jesus was dying. And then there's also the inner curtain, the curtain that separates the place of God's dwelling place itself from the place where the priests um, have the altar, have an altar of incense where they offer uh, special prayers and, uh, and special offerings to God. Uh, so which of these curtains ripped? Well, the gospel authors don't tell us, but one of them did. Now, traditionally, well, not exclusively, but, but I'd say the majority of people who read this story assume that it's the inner curtain. They assume it's the inner curtain that separates God's presence from the rest of the world because we assume that in Jesus' death, God's presence somehow is sort of erupting from him into the world 
penetrating the world in a way that it never has before, being available to the world in a way that it has never been before. Well, that's possible, but it's John's theology, not the synoptic author's theology. Uh, there's nothing about, because uh, again, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus, his role is to announce and enact the kingdom, not to make, to, ex- to, to reveal the presence of God in his own person. In a sense, he does that too, but that's not the point that's emphasized. It's the effects of his actions that are emphasized. So I would think it would almost make sense to have it be the outer curtain. First of all, that would explain why the centurion, seeing how he died, would say something like, truly this was the Son of God, or truly this man was innocent. In other words, if he's standing between Golgotha with a line of sight on the temple, and he suddenly sees Jesus die and the curtain rip, well, that's not something you see every day, right? If Jesus just dies, well, what's, what's that going to make the Roman think? Well, he dies. You know, I, we have another crucifixion scheduled for tomorrow. There's nothing special about it. But if he sees it, he knows something special is happening. The other thing that argues sort of in favor of this outer curtain is that we're told in Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, that this curtain was decorated with uh, symbols of the cosmos, of the heavens. And that should lead us to think, well, is there another place in the basic story of the Synoptic Gospels where the heavens are torn open? At his baptism. Now, that's only in Mark, actually. Matthew and Luke sort of tone that down. The heavens don't tear apart, they open. But in Mark's Gospel, they tear apart. It's the same verb that Mark uses to describe the tearing of the temple curtain. Again, and it's there that Jesus' identity is fully made known in his death. The identity, his secret identity that we know at his baptism is fully revealed at the moment of his death because his death is his baptism and vice versa. That basic theology is in all three authors, the significance of his baptism. Um, So there's something about Jesus' death involving a destructive action with regard to the temple, which is not surprising since in these three Gospels, unlike in John, he predicts the temple's destruction. In Mark And maybe even in Matthew, he uh, brings it about. So some of these details make sense if we put them together with the theme of the temple's destruction. And again, we would say this is all part of the post-war interpretation of Jesus. Obviously, something must have happened to make the temple be destroyed. Well, what, what what is this saying? If Jesus destroys the temple, then the Romans didn't destroy the temple. If Jesus is the cause of the temple's rupture, the temple's failure... Uh, to act, uh, to function as what it's supposed to be, well, then the Romans were just the mopping up operation. That didn't signify that the Romans and their gods were more powerful than our God. That doesn't mean that their destruction of the temple is a sign that God's kingdom is powerless. No, the power of God's kingdom is revealed right here, a generation earlier on the cross. And the prodigy of the temple curtain ripping verifies that. So I would suggest there's a connection between these events What else do Matthew and Luke do with this prodigy? Well, they basically enhance it. In Mark, the original version, it's just the centurion. He's the only one with the line of sight on the temple who can see and correlate these two events. But for Matthew and for Luke, where this is a much more, where Jesus' identity, for one thing, is much more public, the prodigy has to be public too. So guess what happens? The the ripping of the temple curtain is upstaged by a bigger prodigy. In Matthew, it's an earthquake. And not just any earthquake, it's an earthquake which results in the opening of the graves and the, the rising of the saints. Those who are dead are now alive and they come and they meet the living and they talk to them. 
This is a sign that cannot be denied by anyone. It's public. Everyone sees it. It's not something that happens every day. Um, in Luke, darkness falls upon the whole earth. Again, not something that you can uh, easily you know, ignore. So they both amplify that basic idea that Jesus' death is a portent of something. Okay, so we move now to the resurrection, the fourth and final component of the passion narrative. And so we come to the empty tomb. Now in all the story, and again, as I said, the empty tomb is a unique story to the Gospels. It's in all four Gospels, and it's not in Paul. And it's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. The women are not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. This is a tradition which is clearly an ancient tradition because it's not just in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's also in John. And Mary Magdalene is the common denominator. She appears in all four versions. In one version, she appears alone at the empty tomb. In others, she's with a crowd of other women. But uh, that's the basic story. The empty tomb, Mary Magdalene and or other women come and they find something or someone at the tomb, but it's not Jesus. That's the basic plot line. And the someone that they meet tells them to go and tell that Jesus has been raised. Now in Mark, it's a young man, a mysterious young man in this tomb who says, you're in the wrong place. He's risen. Go and tell. You'll see him in Galilee. And of course, they don't go and tell. They go, but they don't tell in Mark. And the curtain closes. Well, how do Matthew and Luke develop this basic story? Well, first of all, they change the identity of who is met in the, in the empty tomb. Matthew has not them coming to the tomb already opened, but he has, they see the angel of the Lord descend and roll aside the tomb and the soldiers that are there, they're, they're, uh, uh, they're, da- they're almost dead in terror of this and they later go on and tell the priests what happened. It's a public event, right? Like everything else in Matthew. But the angel of the Lord, where have we last seen the angel of the Lord in Matthew's gospel? Let's think back to the beginning. This is an inclusio. Where was the angel, of, when, where did the angel of the Lord appear in, the, in Matthew's gospel besides here? The annunciation of Jesus' birth to Joseph, the very first act of the story. After the genealogy, the story begins. The angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and talks to him. At the beginning is the angel of the Lord, at the end is the angel of the Lord. An inclusio. And so he is the one who tells them. There's no young man at the tomb. There's an angel of the Lord who descends from heaven, and he says, uh, go and tell, and by golly, they go and tell, right? And so we have the gathering in Galilee on the mount of the Sermon on the Mount and the commissioning scene. And then we have the end credits rolling by after that. So Matthew alters Mark's original story to accommodate not only his notion of a good ending, but also his, uh, the centrality of the Sermon on the Mount, because that's where they're commanded to go. And there's also another element of Matthew's ending that forms a kind of inclusio that re-echoes one of the central themes of the Sermon on the Mount, and that is what the soldiers go and tell. They tell the, the high priest what happened. What do the high priests do? They bribe them to tell no one. They don't deny that something's happened. They say, we need to keep this quiet. Guess what that makes them? Hypocrites. What happened at the beginning of the story? A man was told, the king, where is the king of the Jews going to be born? Oops, I'm the king of the Jews. Tell me where he is so that I can worship him. Uh-uh, he was a hypocrite. He wanted to kill Jesus. The story begins and ends with a hypocrite or a group of hypocrites. Right? So hypocrisy versus integrity. The women have integrity. They hear and they tell, right? So the women, the disciple, and the, and the disciples as a whole are contrasted with the Jewish leadership. 
Hypocrisy versus integrity. It's the Sermon on Mount all over again. And it's an inclusio. So I would suggest that's one way of reading Matthew's ending. It recaptures and reminds us of the beginning, and it also reminds us of the Sermon on the Mount. What about Luke's ending? Luke is a much more complicated ending. They actually meet the young man in the tomb, but before he can say anything, two more men appear. Two men in glowing robes appear. Maybe they're angels, maybe they're Moses and Elijah. They kind of looked like the guys that were on the mountain talking with Jesus at the transfiguration. Whoever they were, they say, go and tell these rays, but they don't say, tell them to go to Galilee. Because there's no meeting with Jesus in Galilee in Luke's gospel. It's impossible for Luke because Luke's theology dictates that the story begin where it ended or that, that it end where it began. It began not at the Jordan with uh, John the Baptist, not in Bethlehem with the annunciation of Jesus' birth to Joseph. Where did Luke's gospel begin? What's the very first scene in Luke's gospel? Do we remember? The annunciation of John the Baptist's birth to his father in the temple in Jerusalem. It begins in Jerusalem. That's where the announcement of the good news begins. And guess what Jesus commands his followers to do? To stay in Jerusalem so that they may now begin bearing witness to this new revelation. It begins and ends in the temple. Actually, it begins and ends in Jerusalem, but the very last line of Luke's gospel is, and they went to the temple and they were rejoicing. There was much rejoicing. So there's an inclusio. But there's one more story that we need to factor in to Luke's ending. Very important. And this is a good place to sort of end our whole story since we're at 7 o'clock now. The, the road to Emmaus story. It's a great story because it drives home an important lesson to us. And it answers what is the basis of our claim that all this really happened and that we understood it properly. What is the Emmaus story? Well, again, we know that the risen Jesus appears to two disciples, to Peter and to someone else who's not named, as they're walking along after the death and resurrection of Jesus and they don't believe it. And uh, he asks, what were, what were you talking about? They're talking about the prophet Jesus who was crucified. We were hoping he would be the Messiah, but actually he was a prophet. Well, he was a prophet. Remember, that's Luke's basic understanding of Jesus's role is as a prophet. And he's not going to begin to exercise his Messiahship until he ascends into heaven at the end of Luke's gospel. But he says, they couldn't recognize Jesus. His followers couldn't recognize him. They, it's not about the Jews not recognizing him. His followers couldn't recognize him. Peter couldn't recognize him. Peter, who recognized who it was earlier in the gospel, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, he doesn't recognize him. Why? Well, because there is no unaided interpretation of Scripture, of the Old Testament, that would lead people to expect anything that happens at the end of the gospel. It's only Jesus himself who can guide his, his followers to correctly interpret the Scriptures to reveal the Paschal mystery and how it ends. Even though Jesus himself predicts this several times before, this is what can happen, they still don't believe. Whereas the, the function of this story is to point out that the followers of Jesus weren't just trying to, to scramble for some sort of explanation for why the story didn't end the way they expected it would. They got their understanding of the story from the risen Jesus himself. And it required Jesus to explain the scriptures to them. The risen Jesus, not the historical Jesus, not the Jesus that they lived with prior to the crucifixion. The risen Jesus was necessary to make sense of the scriptures that then enabled the gospel authors to write the story that we have. Jesus is the source of this. Not Luke, not Matthew, not Mark, not John. Jesus is the source of this. This is a very important point. 
Because when people ask, well, where do you, where, how, why can, why do Christians interpret the Bible different from, say, Jews? It's not because Christians are more intelligent or more insightful than Jews. It's because we have been given a revelation of Jesus himself. Well, but that's just the way you've been brought up. You, you've been educated, you've been trained to think that way by your social institution, which you call the church. So obviously you're going to read it that way. Well, yes and no. Because where does the church's understanding of this come from? Well, maybe the church made this all up. Well, no. Because there's another element to this story of the road to Emmaus that explains how Christians were led to see and understand the scriptures that lie at the basis of this story. It's not just Jesus breaking open the word to them. It's breaking the bread, is it not? At the end of the story, he has dinner with them. He breaks the bread and then they recognize him. How do we know who Jesus is? Well, we can read the scriptures, but the scriptures are just a book. They're just right. They're just words. They might be true. They might not be. We believe they are true and inspired revelation, but they're just a book. You can't convince anyone to pay attention to them if they don't already think that they're inspired. That's not the, that's not the, the foundation of our faith. The foundation of our faith is the person, Jesus, who explains to us the scriptures, but who does so by breaking open the bread to us, by breaking and offering himself to us. And that is why, at the recent 2008 Synod of Bishops, on the role of the Bible of scripture in the church, they said the privileged point of view, the privileged vantage point for interpreting scripture is what happens up here. There's the priority, even though we do the liturgy of the word first in our, in our mass, the priority, the, the, the priority of interpretation comes from how we experience the bread and the wine. It's that immediate experience, the literal experience of Jesus himself coming from the past into our own present so that we can bring it into the future. It's that that forms the basis of everything, of every way that we read scripture. It's the ultimate criterion of whether a reading of scripture is appropriate or inappropriate, valid or not valid. Does it conform to the shape of the Eucharist? Does it manifest the Paschal mystery which we experience now? That is the meaning of the Emmaus story. So everything that is written about Jesus in these stories that we've been reading ultimately is based upon the breaking of the bread and the consuming of the bread and wine which is to say it's all about the kingdom right, for these authors. Thank you again for coming, and God bless. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.